Philippians 2, 3 to 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. But being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Good morning. Good morning. I'm glad you're all here this morning. My name is Rich Lynn. I serve as one of the elders uh, here at Jacob's Well. Uh, I'm not on staff. I would uh, what you would call a lay elder. So every once in a while I get to uh, be up here uh, and preach the word and uh, it's a privilege to do so. And it's good to see you all. So currently uh, we are in a sermon series called Grammar of Faith, as you can see from our Green and and the, the thick beats. Uh, during uh, during the series, we are taking a close look at uh, the core beliefs of the Christian faith, and we're not only defining them, but learning about uh, you know how the theology should impact the way that we feel, the way that we think, and live out our daily lives. So today, we are looking at the incarnation, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The incarnation, broadly defined, is the uh, embodiment of a deity or spiritual being in some earthly form, or the appearance of a god as human. And so, specifically, uh, uh oh, we're a little spoiler here. Now you can go back. You don't have to show that yet. We're not there yet. Uh, specifically, in uh, the Christian faith, the, uh, the incarnation is the uh, foundational belief in the full divinity and full humanity of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So that's 100% God, 100% human at the same time. Uh, not 50-50 or half and half. Uh, it's good in coffee, but not in Jesus. Good dad joke. So, uh, when, so when we refer to Jesus as God incarnate, you know, what exactly, what does that mean? So in, to prep for today, I read through this book. It's called The Person of Christ. I'll refer to it a few times today. Uh, the author outlined 10 statements to explain the incarnation. Now, if that makes your heart skip because how long we're going to be here, uh, we're, I'm not going to go through all 10, but I thought I'd start with three. 
I'll list three, just a, a little a base for us to, to start with. So now number one. First statement is that the person or subject of the incarnation is the eternal divine son, the second person of the triune Godhead. He is the exact image, correspondence, and word of the Father, and is thus fully God. Okay, so the foundation of the incarnation is the Trinity. Now, uh, if you had, you know, a few weeks ago, Pastor Scott uh, had uh, went through the Trinity uh, in one of the sermons, and I highly encourage you, if you weren't there, uh, to go back. I think it's three or four weeks ago. It's on our website. You go on there, uh, listen to it. Uh, it's a good, it's a good uh, primer for the Trinity, and um, yeah, so you should go check that out. So th what this is saying is that uh, God the Son existed and exists as part of a triune God, is God, and doesn't cease to be God even when he takes on human form. Right, that's number one. Second statement, as the divine Son, he has always existed in an eternally ordered relation to the Father and the Spirit, which is now gloriously revealed in the Incarnation. This is saying that the Son of God didn't come into existence when Jesus was born. Uh, the Son of God was and is eternal and was revealed in human form in the person of Jesus. The third statement, in the incarnation, all right, this is a long one, so all right, take a deep breath. In the incarnation, the eternal Son took on a new mode of, of existence as a man. The divine Son now subsists in, and acts in two natures without changing the integrity of either nature, confusing them or melding them into a divine human hybrid. The son's actions in his human nature does not override the limitations of that nature. The son truly lives, experiences the world, and acts as a man. By man, he means human, not a dude. But uh, I mean, he is a dude, but he experiences the world as a human. That's a lot. Uh, in other words, uh, it's saying in the incarnation, when God the Son took on the form of a human, he, he is now permanently both 100% God, still the same before, but now also perma permanently takes on new nature that is 100% human. That's a lot. Uh, I'm going to pause there for a second and just be honest. Uh, for me, this does twist my brain a little bit. Uh, so as someone who has grown up in the church, and many of you may have, I did, uh, I spent a good, good amount of time hearing this, learning it, uh, studying it, uh, doctrines like the Trinity and the Incarnation. It's still quite challenging. Uh, it's difficult for my brain to wrap around this, this logic. You know, you read something like number three, and you think, like, how does that work? Right? Like, how exactly is that possible? How does it work? And so I would consider myself to be a somewhat skeptical person. You know, before I trust something, I've always wanted to know how it works first. Now, I've been like that since I was young. I love learning and figuring out how something functions and why it works. I am... Uh, an instruction manual reader, 
Anyone else like to read the instructions? I know a lot of you just throw it out. Shame, shame. <laughs> a lot of it's digital now, so it's easy to skip. But I, I like to read the instructions. Uh, I, I like um, read reviews on products I consider buying. Uh, I love and still love to this day to just take something apart, dismantle it, see how it works, figure, figuring it out. So being steeped in this way of seeing the world, I was always a bit hesitant to fully accept this traditional view of the incarna or incarnation with, with wide open arms. And it wasn't necessarily that I didn't believe that it was true. It was always holding this tension of, uh, I believe this is true, but since I can't fully understand or grasp the concept and test whether it's true, I feel a sense of unease. And I share this because many of you may feel the same way. I identify with the Apostle Thomas. Uh, you may have heard him called Doubting Thomas. If you take a uh, look at, we're going to take a, a minute and look at John 20, 24 to 29. Yeah, I'm going to read it. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Oh, this is after the resurrection. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Uh, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hand. Put, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So when encountered with this prospect uh, of a risen Christ, what is Thomas's reaction? I need to see this for myself. I need to see and physically observe the evidence. What you're telling me is illogical. I saw the man died. I saw him buried. I simply cannot believe what you're telling me until I can test this on my own. Until then, say what you want, but these strong words, I will never believe. Thomas gets a lot of flack for this, uh, which is why he has earned that dubious nickname. But Thomas's way of thinking is actually not a terrible thing. And notice Jesus' reaction when they are reunited. Now, there's no rebuke, no reprimand. Jesus is kind. He invites Thomas to him. You know, come, feel touch, observe, analyze with your own eyes <clears throat> and hands. He understood Thomas's need to experience and test what he's heard proclaimed. And then notice Jesus' response after Thomas you know, does his thing and proclaims that Jesus is God. He says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. So I, I always interpreted this as Jesus is like reprimanding Thomas, right? Like, why'd you doubt? Uh, 
but they, I came to see that, you know, Jesus is, uh, you know, he's not reprimanding us, but he's making a proclamation. Actually, it's a blessing for us. It's for all those who will come after, uh, come after them, who will not have the opportunity to see the risen Christ with our eyes and be present with him and observe him and verify his claims in the same way that Thomas and the, and the apostles were able to. It's a blessing for us. So this past summer, uh, I decided that I wanted to take my family out for a little biking adventure. So I always wanted to visit the, the Rockaways in New York City. I'm intrigued by this area because it's a place where you can see the, you have a beach view on one side and the Manhattan skyline on the other. It's a pretty cool place, so never been there. Um, and so I loaded up six bikes into my truck and plan out the route and that we would take and, and then we headed out. So the, the route that I decided that we would bike uh, takes us over this pedestrian bridge. Uh, it's called the Marine Parkway Bridge and is over Jamaica Bay. I looked on maps, I checked out the route, looked at reviews, of course. Uh, everyone was saying that's a fantastic view. They love the bridge. And so I was like, all right, let's go, let's do it. Uh, so we got there, you know, unloaded, unloaded our bikes, we were biking, and as I approached the bridge, I realized that I had greatly underestimated the size of the bridge. You could, you could put a picture up. Uh, I mean, I, the picture didn't look bad, right? Seems like, but it's, it's about 4,000 feet long, which feels a lot longer than it sounds. Uh, it's, it's about 55 feet above the water. And the pedestrian part of it was quite close to the four-lane section, a vehicle section. So every time a car or truck would pass, it would rumble and shake. And uh, so <laughs> let's just say my family was not thrilled at me that I made them take this route. We did make it across, uh, maybe a bit more uh, white-knuckled than I was hoping. Uh, and we did get a, you know, did get a nice view. The next picture is the, is the view. Uh, the, the, the bridge is actually kind of narrow, the pedestrian part too. So it's, it's a little scary. But when I think about this experience of being on the bridge, I realize that uh, you know, I was able to go onto the bridge without fully knowing all the details of how it was designed or how it was built. I couldn't inspect every beam uh, to make sure it was secure. I, I couldn't check the engineers' calculations, to make sure they were correct. But I was still willing to trust the bridge, uh, to enjoy the journey, and, and, and enjoy the, the views that I, was, that I was looking for, despite being you know, a little terrified. Uh, and the reason I was able to do that, because I generally know how bridges work. I trusted the work and the calculations and the diligence of the engineers, the builders, safety inspectors that created and built that bridge. In the same way, we can't apply scientific method to the incarnation. We can't physically analyze the evidence and can't say with, answer with any certainty the questions of how exactly does this work. But what we do have is we have the Bible, we have scripture, uh, which not only provides us with an accurate recording of the words and life of Jesus, 
but also reveals to us this theology of incarnation, which was realized over time by his followers. Jesus never sat down with his disciples and outlined the ten points of what, what they should believe about the Trinity or about himself, but it was over time, as they continued to follow Jesus and listen and learn from his words, uh, even after his death and resurrection, the early church continued to ponder the words and life of Jesus and the scriptures, and they eventually reasoned into this truth of the incarnation. And so when we approach this doctrine, uh, we look to the Bible, we look to God's word and see what it reveals to us. So let's, let's do that. Uh, we're going to explore the, this question, what is the incarnation? You can take that piece. Um, we're going to look at Colossians 1, 15 to 23. You could turn there in your Bibles, phone, or you could follow along on, on the screen. <clears throat> it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the first, firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So here we have Paul in his letter to the Colossians bringing some, bringing some deep theological concepts about Jesus. So I want to break this up into three parts. Uh, the first part is he's describing uh, Jesus with phrases that highlight his divinity. First one, he's the image of the invisible God. That's another way of saying Jesus was, in his very nature, God. This is also an echo of the Genesis creation account, you know, image of God, uh, where it says man was created in God's image. Last week, Jalen Baker preached about the uh, humans being created in God's image and what that means. What that means is that uh, we are created to reflect God and represent him in the world. And so this is a callback to that. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the perfect image. So he's the perfect re reflection of God and able to represent God to the world in a way that we could not. Uh, the, he also uses the phrase, uh, firstborn of all creation, and by all him all things are created. Uh, now, this is not saying, which has been argued before throughout the centuries, that Jesus was the first uh, being that God created. Uh, there's something called Arianism, and that is incorrect. So in calling Jesus the firstborn of all creation, Paul is referring to his role as the authority over creation. And verse 16 elaborates that. It says that in him and through him all things are created. So Jesus is the creator. 
Lastly, the phrase, in him all things hold together, is saying that the Son of God is the sustainer of, of all things. And this is, this is crazy to think about, what he's saying, because it's saying that while Jesus was on earth in human form, in his divine nature, he was still fulfilling the role of God. He was still fulfilling, or he was still sustaining the universe at the same time and holding it together. It's fascinating. Fascinating uh, statement. It's something worth pondering, but it's a discussion for another time. And so if we move on to the middle part of the passage, Jesus is described with phrases highlighting his works uh, on earth as God in flesh. Paul calls him the head of the body, the church. Now, Jesus is the founder of the church, the leader of the church. Firstborn from the dead is another phrase he used. That Jesus was the first to resurrect from the dead into a new body, and that's the hope that we have, that we can have life after death. And the final part uh, that, that Paul is saying, uh, or the last couple verses there, in Jesus the fullness of God was pleased to dwell so that through his death on the cross, his creation would be able to be reconciled to the creator. So this is the purpose of the incarnation, which was ultimately reconciliation. Uh, it's interesting to note that the claim to be divine, to be God, whether it's self-proclaimed or proclaimed by others, uh, it's not unique in human history. Many emperors and powerful rulers have been considered divine by their followers. Uh, spiritual thinkers, leaders throughout the history have been considered gods or uh, considered to be gods in human form. Uh, one rather amusing account I encountered was in 490 BC. There was a Greek philosopher named uh, Empedocles. He claimed he was divine and tried to convince people that he was an immortal god by jumping into a volcano. The result was he, he fell into a volcano and died. Uh, so, you know, so if the incarnation as revealed in the Bible is true, then Jesus is unique. You know, he's not just another in a long list of individuals who claim to be divine. I'm going to put up a quote from this uh, same book, the author Stephen J. Wellam said it very well. It says, our Savior and Redeemer is unique. Do I not have it? Did I forget to put it in there? I have, I've been known to do that. All right, well, I'll read it. Uh, our Savior and Redeemer is unique in both who he is and what he does. In fact, because sin makes our plight so desperate, the only person who can save us is God's own Son. It's only as the Son incarnate that our Lord can represent us, pay for our sin, stand in our place. Only Jesus can satisfy God's righteous demands against us, as he is the one with the Lord as God the Son. Only Jesus can do this for us because he is truly a man and can represent us. So that's, that's what the Incarnation is. That's the, the orthodox uh, view of the Incarnation. And as is the theme of the series, uh, we need to take this belief, we need to ask how, you know, how this should impact how we feel, 
in how we act, how we live our lives. And to do that, we're going to look at the, the verse we re- uh, Krista Joy read us earlier, Philippians 2, 3 to 11. And actually, Rob, our liturgy leader today, also read part of it to us. That's great. Uh, so I'm not going to read it again, but I'm going to highlight a few things. In this passage, the Apostle Paul, again, lays out a very high theological concept about Jesus, about the Incarnation. If you notice in verse 6, he says that Jesus was in the form of God and was equal to God. Despite being equal with God, equal in status and in nature, it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So what that means, what he is saying, is not that he, uh, he, he gave up, he, he's talking about power and privilege, not nature. You know, he's saying he emptied himself. He's giving up the privileges and glory of being in a direct relationship with God. Uh, and as the creator, he gave up the right to rule over his creation. Instead, he gave all that up uh, so he could serve the very being that he created, taking on the limits of an, of, uh, an earthly body. And that's what is referred to here when he says, in likeness and in form. This paints a picture of the contrast to where Jesus was, you know, being equal with God in direct loving relationships, with God the Father, with all the power and privilege that, the, that God the creator of the universe had, to where he willingly went, emptied of power and privilege, took on not only the limits of a mortal human body, but also kept going. He became a servant to the beings that he created. And then he continued on. He continued to humble himself to the point of death, and even death on a cross. And by saying even, even a death on a cross, he's referring to the fact that the crucifixion, it was perceived as a, a shameful way to die. Went highest of highs, lowest of lows. And so Jesus, if Jesus was truly God, the eternally existing creator, and also truly a man who died a criminal's death, cut off in relationship from God, the Father, then this claim is truly, it's, it's profound. You know, the distance between the two points is immeasurable. I saw a movie recently. Uh, I won't name the movie because it's, I'm, I'm going to give some minor spoilers. Uh, it's a science fiction movie, superhero-ish. Uh, I'm, I'm particularly fond of, if you know me, uh, uh, fond of these genres. So I'm going to describe the scene. It really, this, the scene just really stuck out to me in this movie. So in this movie, there's the antagonist, the main villain. Uh, the main villain is a powerful being who uses science, technology, biology, and is said to have created many types of living beings and is responsible for the founding of many civilizations uh, within the universe. Uh, so he's considered by his created beings to be a god. So in, this one, in the movie, in this one particular scene, it shows the protagonist, the heroes, uh, landing on one of the planets. 
Uh, it's inhabited by a race of beings that the, that the antagonist has created. And the planet was allegedly a perfect society. It was inhabited by beings through trial and error and testing and improvement. The creator had created them to exhibit all that was good and beautiful about the planet that, we, that humans inhabited. But, to quote, uh, but with none of the ignorance and bigotry that was found on Earth. So in this short montage, it shows a protagonist traveling through uh, this, just a small part of this planet. And it shows them observing on this planet the very same ills that plagued humans. It showed poverty, addiction, violence, and injustice. Uh, so it, it turns out that for this villain, in the quest to create a perfect being, and to create a perfect world, the creator had a complete disregard for his creation. And that he was willing to, on a whim, completely destroy the beings he, he created and start over whenever a newer and better iteration is found. And, but it seems like regardless of how much he tried to perfect each new version, the world that he creates devolves into the same issues he's trying to get rid of. Obviously, this is science fiction fantasy, uh, but the particular uh, scene of this movie stuck out to me for, for a couple reasons. First, it is intriguing to me that there is this acknowledgement in the movie that there's something plaguing the human existence that's beyond physical. You know, no matter how much this creator improved the intelligence and physical bodies of his creatures, he could not get rid of uh, what we as Christians would, would call sinful nature. The second thing that I thought was interesting was that the movie portrays a powerful, ingenious creator that creates, but in, in the ultimate pursuit of, of creating this perfect world, uh, he has no love, no relationship with the creation, and is willing to destroy it to fulfill his ends. Our God is also a powerful, ingenious creator. But the incarnation is proof that he is not just a God that creates for the sake of creating, uh, or, or creates for the sake of having beings to rule over. And he doesn't perfect his creation by creating more or creating better. He perfects it by emptying himself, as Philippians here, the verse says. He's emptying himself of the glory and rights and privileges of a creator, and not only becoming one of his created beings, but becoming a servant of his created beings. So if you take a, take a look at this Colossians passage and Philippians passage, and you, and you look at them together, uh, what we see is that it reveals that we serve a God that is above all a relational God. Uh, the late pastor Tim Keller uh, speaking on the incarnation, it says that uh, he said, For the God of the Bible, love and relationship is eternally inherent in him. And therefore, when he created the world and all beings, he created not to get love, but he created to give love. He created not to use us for his needs, but he created us, or, but he created to let us take in the richness of the love he had within, within himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is, again, profound. 
It's a profound claim, and, and the incarnation is a physical representation of this truth. And so how do we apply that? Uh, going, going back to this passage in Philippians, Paul is saying, if our creator God saw it fit to take such drastic action of humility and self-sacrifice for people, Paul says, we must have the same mind. You know, verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So is that not the hardest, some of the hardest things to do, right? To look to the interests of others above your own, count others as more significant than yourself, putting aside pride, selfish ambitions, and having a posture of humility toward others. We look at the at people around us, we look at this broken world, and we ask, that is how we are to live? And the answer is yes, because Jesus is our example. And so having this right understanding of the incarnation should give us this heart of love and humility to serve others, to live for the good of others, uh, because it reveals, the incarnation reveals that that is God's same heart for us. So uh, as we wrap things up, I want to look at one final passage. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16. It says, for, uh, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So far we've looked at what the incarnation is and how it's a real representation of the lengths that God went to reconcile his creation to himself, uh, which should humble us and move us to love others and live for the good of others. In this passage, we see how the incarnation should change the way that we relate to our Creator. Because God took on human form, He is truly able not just to sympathize with us, but empathize with us. You know, verse 15, it says that Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are, but without sin. And not only was He tempted in the same ways we are, He had firsthand experience of the full range of human limitation and weakness. All you have to do is look at the life of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. You see that he did live and experience the world as a human. He was born. He was a child. He had to grow up. And Luke said that he, uh, he, had, he grew in stature and wisdom, which means he had to learn and obtain knowledge. He had to deal with complicated family dynamics and relationships. He got tired and hungry. Uh, he experienced high expectations of him that he physically, in his human form, could not fulfill. He lost loved ones and experienced grief. He experienced the full range of human relationships, 
On one side, he was beloved by many people and intensely hated by many people. He was betrayed. He witnessed firsthand the death of human suffering, oppression and injustice. But he just didn't you know, observe it. He actively drew near to it. He intentionally, intentionally moved towards the vulnerable and the sick and the suffering. And let's not forget that he was not obligated to do any of that. The incarnation, the fact that God took on a human body and entered into the world to serve us, shows that God is not only concerned with the spiritual part of us, he is also concerned about the physical part of us. What happens to our bodies what happens in the physical world matters to God. This is something that we are going through in, in the physical 101 and 201 discipleship courses. So some of the, that may sound familiar to some of you. Um, you know, God not only hates sin because it separates us from him in relationship, but it also uh, deeply affects his creation in a physical way. You know, both our own sins, the sins that we commit, commit against other people, uh, the sins that other people commit against us, uh, they, they, they affect his God's creation physically. And so if the problem is both spiritual and physical, the solution must also be physical and spiritual. And so the application of that is clear in verse 16. Uh, because of the incarnation, we can confidently approach God with our struggle, with our spiritual struggles and difficulties we can be also, uh, and when we do so, we can be confident that we will receive mercy and grace in the time of need. And so by, and by extension, because of the incarnation, we can also approach God with our physical suffering and difficulties and needs, uh, and we, we will find a God who, who knows, who understands, who understands just how difficult those things are. And so the question to ask is, do you believe this? Do you believe that the God of all creation is for you and that you can approach him and expect mercy and grace in return? Do you believe that our God is loving, a loving and relational God? Do you believe that through Jesus, uh, not only does as he reconciles creation to himself, but gives us an example of how he wants us to live and how he wants us to represent him to the world? These are the profound uh, impacts of the Incarnation. Obviously, you know, many books have been written about it. But I, I just want to encourage you to not only learn about doctrines like the Incarnation, uh, Trinity, things like that, but also to think about how, how this should change the way that you perceive God and how it should move you towards love and serving others.